Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Policing at different times in its history around the world has failed the very people amongst its ranks. Either through overt or covert acts of racism, misogyny or homophobia, it has at times failed to challenge poor behaviour and culture which has isolated those who just wanted to be accepted for who they were. These behaviours have led officers such as my next guest, retired Metropolitan Police Constable Gamal Turawa to hide. Not literally, but to hide from who he really was, a proud gay black man, who wanted to be him and for others around him to accept him for who he was. I have interviewed during the course of this podcast over 40 guests, but undoubtedly this episode is the most important story I've told so far. If we are ever to improve... And to be better, we have to challenge who we are. We have to listen to each other, understand the thoughts, feelings and beliefs of others. And importantly, we have to respect each other. Gamal, commonly known as G, is one of the bravest men I have ever met, whose story is one that you can't help but get emotional over, which leaves you asking yourself, what would I have done if I had been there? G is resilient. He is courageous. He is a leader who now enables people to have these courageous conversations around the important topics of equality, race and gender. 
But importantly, and above all else, he is now proud of who he is. It was an honour for me to recently hear his story on the podcast Protect and Serve, and for that I will be forever grateful. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And as ever, I'm incredibly thankful to um, the countless numbers of people that reach out to me and comment and share and provide feedback on a podcast, which I'm so humbled to have uh, taken to different places and to speak to different people. Series one was fantastic, but series two is really important for me. It's about breaking through glass ceilings. It's about having courageous conversations. It's about talking to people. This series, that regardless of gender, ethnicity, sexuality, that anything can be achieved in policing. And my next guest um, has achieved some remarkable things in his policing career and has broken through those barriers and I think really opened the doors for people that follow behind him in their policing career. So without further ado, I'd like to wel- welcome Gamal Turawa to the podcast. G, welcome. How are you this evening? I'm good. I'm good. Good to, good to be here. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, certainly given a no, lot no. of thought for some of the conversations. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. with all my podcasts, like every good detective, as I like to call myself, is we like to wind back to the beginning of somebody's story. And the first question I always ask my guests mm. is, Choosing policing is a big decision. Why choose that vocation? Hmm. Oh, God, there's a number of reasons. Um, I wish I had a clear, clear answer. Um, I think the seed, I, I grew up very, uh, had a mixed, mixed, re, um, mixed relationship with the police. The first mm. few years I grew up, we I grew up in a little village in Kent, and we knew the local Bobby. So that was a positive experience. I then came to London when I was about eight years old. And when I was about eight, nine, I had a very negative experience with the police. In fact, it was at eight, nine that the police then... taught me what it meant to be black Mm. Um, and I started to hate the police in fact I hated them with a passion Um, and then I saw a black police officer when I was about 14 15 directing traffic Norwell Roberts it was Norwell Roberts yeah Mm. and it was the first time I'd seen a black police officer and it just sort of like took my breath away. And mm. I think then a seed was planted. Um, then that went away. I then went and did a whole load of other things. Um, had a whole load of other experiences which weren't all pleasant. Um, and got to a place where I hated being black. Um, because I, the way I started to interpret the world is that every experience that I had had, I had had of being black was negative. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason for joining the police was because I wanted to be white. And I saw that as the closest I could get to being white. Often our families, uh, uh, get mixed reactions from Mm. when we want, and when we tell them that we're going to be pursuing this 
dream or this this desire mm. to to enter into law enforcement it can get a mixed reaction some positive and some negative what were your reactions from family when you told them or you expressed the potential desire to pursue a life of policing i didn't it 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 was none of their business really i'd got to a mm. point i mean i wasn't close to my family i didn't have a close family happy family relationship so mm. my family weren't even a factor in that decision it was I was going to do what I wanted to do. Um, so yeah, they there was no there was no there was no discussion with them really, um, and I think they're probably just looking for he's going to do what he wants to do anyway. Mm. And then you know that the the challenges of getting into policing mm. before you've even walked through the gates of Hendon mm. can be challenging for people on a multitude of different levels. What was that experience for you wanting to join the police and going through that application process? Uh, it took me about three and a half years and five applications. Um, wow. And back in those days, they never told you why you were rejected. You just got a letter saying you haven't been successful. Um, but for some reason, every time I got that letter, I put in an up another application. And then I remember it was the fourth application. I'd got through the whole process, almost the whole process. We used to go to Hendon for two days, or we used to go to Hendon overnight. And the next mm. morning, you were taken back to Paddington, where the recruitment centre was. And I returned to Paddington. And I remember sort of like I was called into a side room, and I was just told, the process for you is now ended. Take your bags and leave the building. And I sat there and I was like, sorry, just take your bags. There was no explanation. There was nothing. There was just, I didn't know what had happened, what had gone wrong or anything like that. And I, I remember I sort of like left the building and it was a February. I remember it was a February and he's really cold. And I got home mm. or I got to my home station and suddenly realized I'd forgotten my bags. I was in that state of shock that I just walked out and left my luggage. So I had to go mm. all the way back into London, all the way back to Paddington. And when I got there, the receptionist said, oh, wait there, somebody wants to see you. And I said, okay. And then the sergeant came out, took me into a side mm. room, and he said, you need to appeal that decision. And I was like, "Wow, why? He goes, no, I'm telling you, you need to appeal that decision. I'm telling you, put in an appeal. He said, that's all I'm saying. And I was like, okay. So I put in the appeal. I was called back for another interview. I also had um, a boss at the time. He was an ex. He was an ex chief superintendent, and I think he he wrote a yeah he wrote a, a reference for me because I was working as a store detective at the time. So I think that had a bit of a that helped a bit as well. And I went up there. And they said to me, right, you're going to have the interview, but this time you need to understand that if you don't get through the interview, that is the end of it. You cannot reapply again. Do you understand? And I was like, yes, I understand. I just want to be given a crack. And I remember doing the interview and I was told by the interview panel and everything that that was the best interview of the day. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, even the, the, there was a sergeant who did, sergeant and inspector. 
And the sergeant came out to find me and shake my hand and said, that was a really enjoyable, really enjoyed that interview. And I was like, thank you. And I got through. And it was funny because years later, I was working in recruitment, sitting on recruitment panels. And I was sitting next to the person who had signed my rejection letters. Oh, <laughs> oh, God. oh. Uh, Tense room? No, I found it amusing. <laughs> I found it very amusing. I didn't say anything to them, but you know, I knew who they were. So. But I did, you know, years later, I mentioned it. So, so, so for the context for listeners, what, what, what year are we talking about in terms of you applying? That was, I, I first applied, I think it must have been 1988, 88, 89. Uh, but I didn't actually get in until 1992. Uh, started at Hendon in 1992, May 1992. Let's talk about that um that 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 initial period of of policing so you sort of march into the gates of hendon yeah. to start this incredible vocation of policing which we often describe as as a complex one there's a lot there's a lot of legislation policy and procedure to be learnt um there's a lot of physical components to it in terms mm. of everything that's taught of you in terms of operational safety tactics how did you find those elements of policing going through the training college it <clears throat> it should have been easy right it should have been easy it wasn't it was um it was challenging what made it challenging wasn't necessarily the studying it was the constant microaggressions um i was one of there were three of us in our intake who were black and if people saw us standing there talking together there would be comments like, are you lot trying to plan a riot or something like that? There were constant sort of like digs. Um, there were comments like, you know, oh, you don't have to uh, study because they want you lot. You don't, you'll pass every exam. They'll make sure you pass. Um, you know, and, and little things like that. Comments going on all the time. And, and I just wanted to get on. Mm. And I remember going to see a sergeant. Uh, still remember his name very clearly and sat down with him in this meeting and just said look for about 45 minutes just poured my heart out and say how this was knocking me off balance and how well you know it was annoying and everyone was having a dig and all this sort of stuff not everyone but people were having a dig and he just looked at me when I finished and he said you know what your problem is sunshine you've got a chip on your shoulder <sighs> and I just remember looking at him and thinking you haven't understood a word I've said. No. Um, then an opportunity came along for me to sort of like say, to prove I was safe, so to speak. And some guys came and knocked on my door. And they came in and we were laughing and joking. They said, you know, you're actually the wrong color to be in this job. And I had some shoe whitener that we used to clean our trainers with. And they, this is in your personal dormitory. In my room, room, yeah. And they came in and we was, yeah. And they took the shoe white and they said, we can sort it out. And they painted me white. And then took a photograph. And we took a photo. Now, the thing about that is I let them do it. Because I felt that this was what I needed to do to fit in. I want you to see that I'm not a problem. Um, and that was the length, you know, when I do talks now, I, 
one of the things I said, what do we give up to fit in? Because I gave up my identity. I gave up my ethnicity to fit in. Um, I told the racist jokes in the canteen. I would go out and stop and search black people as, as many as I could so I could prove to people back in the canteen that I'm not one of them, I'm one of you. Um, I'm part Nigerian. People used to make comments about Nigerians in the canteen. As a result of hearing those comments, I made sure that I distanced myself from my Nigerian relatives and friends. Because I didn't want those people in the canteen that were my mates to think that I had anything to do with them. Um, and you know, th there were a lot of good people, there were some really good people, there were some people there that I would always be grateful for and looked out for me. But there were others that looked at me with suspicion or you know, I was constantly felt like I was being tested. Did anybody ever stand up for you in these sort of... Yeah, that's why I said there were some good people. There was, there was a... I mean... <laughs> Um, one, but I can give you two scenarios, but I don't know, I'll, I'll give you one of them. Um, I, I, I did the street duties course, as in, I used to take new probationers out. We used to call it puppy walking. Um, and I'd take the probationers out and I'd take them down the high road and get them to do things and interact and help them, you know, to get comfortable with being a police officer on the street. And on my beat, the high road was my beat, there was a set of garages around the back of the high road. And I always felt like something dodgy was going on there, right? And I always used to go around there and just have a cigarette while I was there. I'd sort of clock a few registration numbers and whatever and do a few checks and everything like that. So this particular day, I'm with this young probationer. Uh, who's got you know less than a year's service and we go walking around there and the guys in the garage are used to seeing me because I used to use it as a cigarette break so to speak and then they just turn around and say hey don't start bringing any of these white cops around here right? and they said it jokingly uh, and we had a laugh around it and we went away uh, a few about a week or so later or maybe just over a week I was coming out of the back door of the Nick and there's an inspector there who called me over. And I will mention his name because it's good, right? Uh, inspector Taylor, Sultan Taylor. And he called me over and he said, um, did you go to these garages on the day? And I said, yes. And he said, what's this about a brown envelope you were given? I said, sorry? He goes, what's this about a brown envelope? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, so you weren't given a brown envelope? And I'm like, no, the hell no. I was fuming. And he said, okay, leave with me. I'll look into this a bit further. And I walked off and it's just one of those things where suddenly things just, I don't know, they just sort of fitted in the moment. And as I was going towards the canteen, this probationer was coming out the canteen. And I'm thinking, you and I would have both went there. Both of us know no envelope was given. Right? So I went up with him, literally going up to him to sort of like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Uh, and he came up to me and said, I've just been pulled by the governor about something about a brown envelope. I don't know anything about a brown envelope. 
I said, well, if you don't know anything and I don't know anything, where the hell has this story come from? And we're fuming. And it turned out there was a PC on the team who didn't like me. And he had heard me and this probationer talking about this scenario and the thing. And he made up the story. Bloody hell. And I always think that if it wasn't for that inspector, Sultan Taylor, and he looked into it and he found this out, there could have been another inspector who just basically hated me for whatever reason. And it could have been so easy to, you know, get me, get my card marked for one degree, or even get me out of the job. Where were you, when you graduated from, from Hendon, where were you post, where was your first posting? Uh, Wembley. And, and um, I'm right in saying that's where you worked for the duration of your career before you moved into the equity and diversity unit. Uh, I worked for the first seven, eight years of my career there. Well, after graduating mm-hmm. and having, to, having, you know, Policing provides us with so many different challenges. Some, some some things we deal with that we're not we don't know how we're going to respond to them, like trauma and sudden death yeah. and managing all these emotions. How are you able to respond to these sorts of incidents in terms of managing your own emotions whilst also dealing with other internal issues with your colleagues and your peers making these jokes, you <laughs> know, having these uh, having these really quite. Mm yucky and and distressing conversations with you whilst also trying to learn this trade which is very complex i mean to a certain extent my upbringing i was brought up in a very traumatic circumstances so Mm -hmm. i you know dead bodies pain stuff like that i was used to that wasn't an issue for me uh you know you know turning up at a sudden death or something like that was never an issue uh i lived in a i lived in nigeria for a while and, you know, sometimes you'll see dead bodies on the street for days or weeks. So, you know, I wasn't really, I got to a point where that really wasn't an issue. Um, so I was confident now. In fact, I felt more comfortable on the streets sometimes than I did back at the Nick. Uh, I, the team I was on, I was on the team and the first sergeant I had treated me badly he he just he made life hell for me no matter what i did it was wrong right you know there were two of us that went on the team two of us were the same length of service the other guy happened to be a white guy right could do no wrong i could do no right no matter what i did no matter how hard i tried he would find a way of giving me a bargain. And then what he would do is go back into the control room and boast about the fact that he'd given me a bargain. And it put me in a place that I didn't know who to trust. Because I didn't know who his, who his friends were or anything like that. And at that time, nobody stood up for me. and Nobody appeared to stand up for me. Um, so I found a way to get off that team. That's why I became a home beat. Um, so that I could be out on the beat on my own, mainly most of the time we work without, without being on that team. Not saying that everybody on the team, but you know, with this sergeant, you never knew who he knew or anything. Um, you know, I remember one time, for example, he, we, had, we had arrested someone and we were sitting in the canteen writing up our notes. And then he says to me, you know, you should be getting me a cup of tea. I said, okay, yes, sergeant. I went over to get some tea two cups of tea and I'm coming back 
and this is in the canteen and as I'm walking back to the table somebody's bag was in the way and I didn't see it and I tripped over and spilt the tea dropped the tea on the floor he just stood up in front of everyone and started calling me the c-word sort of call me useless an idiot he just stood there and he just berated me and I'm standing there thinking just getting up with this tea and thing all over me thinking it was an accident and he just stood in the middle of the counter and and what well, I remember everyone looking around but no one said a word how did this affect your mental health during this period gosh you just got it on with it like that would see uh, that would have mm. broken me it, it just I don't know I just got on with it I mean there were times when I did go back to my room and I sat in my room and I did cry um but it was one of those things that don't let them see you upset. And there were good people around. Not There weren't good people I could tell what was going on. I mean, the sad thing around it is if I went to my friends outside the job, their attitude was, you shouldn't have joined. And then I was the only black officer at the station I was at. So there was no one I could go to to say, this is what it feels like, or could you understand this? So a lot of the time, I had to keep everything inside. Um, my way of dealing with it most of the time was just to buy drinks and you know, make sure I, I'd be, be as social as possible so that people couldn't see the pain. Let's talk about um, family. We, we, did you have a strong... I know we've, we've spoken, obviously, just briefly ago about yeah. your, your family relationship was, was broken and that you didn't have a very good mm. relationship with, with family. But were, you, were there some members of your family that you were able to converse with and share some of your experiences with as a bit of a buffer, as a bit of a support mechanism? Because yeah. family is often the greatest. You didn't have that. Yeah. I developed, as I was in the job, I developed a new friends network. Um, some of the friends I had before the job drifted away. Uh, but then you develop new friends. And, yeah, I've always been good at meeting people making friends so with all these experiences that were going on mm. was policing a job that you enjoyed oh gosh yeah or was it a was it a job no it's and i think this is something that when we look at a lot of this stuff around policing people from minority backgrounds have a far deeper passion and commitment to policing than people actually appreciate because you have to you're challenging a lot more than a white person would challenge to join. Mm. So your commitment is coming from a far deeper place. And that's where my commitment... I enjoyed the profession. I enjoyed being a cop. I enjoyed being a black cop. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I would walk down the high road, for example, and I would have people stop their cars and get out and come up and shake my hand. Oh, wow. Uh, from the black community. You know, and especially the older black, the older generation would come up and they would just stop me and say, you're doing such a good thing. Uh, you get some of the younger kids who would, um, in fact, <laughs> this is a good story. There was a young kid there who, there was a group of kids who used to hang around um, outside McDonald's in the high road, as, as kids do. And I remember sort of when I first started, and I call it the McDonald's syndrome. <laughs> and as a black officer, you're walking along 
and you would hear names like Judas or Coconut or Bounty or, you know, and those are the polite ones. And as you walk past every one of those names, the venom of them would just hit you. And you could feel the anger or you could feel the pain of them. And there was no one to tell, to talk to about that. If you went back and said to the station, to someone, they're just, oh, don't worry, they're just kids. But there was a different level to it. And that was stage one. Stage two would be, okay, I'm going to stop. And when I go there, I'm going to talk to them. Mm. Yeah, if I talk to them, they'll understand who I am or where I'm coming from. And you stop yeah. and you try and talk to them. And they don't want to talk to you. They just hate you. In fact, they'd walk away. Right? And that would hurt. Because you're thinking, I'm not getting through here. And then you get to stage three. And stage three is... If you're lucky, you build up this armor. And when you walk past them, you stop, you stop hearing it because you start thinking, okay, I know why I'm doing this, even if you don't. Mm. And that's what's important. Um, all, these, all these experiences that you were going through yeah. and that you were dealing with and, and at times challenging to the best that you could do and trying to bring them up with colleagues, mm. is that what... Is that was was that the catalyst to you wanting to try and make change by moving into the equity and diversity arena? No, 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 that wasn't the catalyst at all. No, um, I wasn't even thinking about the equity and diversity field. It wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't on yeah. my radar. It wasn't anything I thought about. I didn't even know it existed. Um, what happened was the way I got to that place is I was on the team for a while working. And then this job came up. Somebody rang me up and said, look, there's this job come up for the positive action team, which mm. dealt with recruitment, retention, and development of minorities within the police. And I thought, what's this all about? And it was just at the time of the Stephen Lawrence report. Um, so I went on this team. I applied and I, got, I was successful on the team. And part of it was just the excitement of working in central London as opposed to working in Wembley, you know, I could go into London, be a commuter sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which lasts for about a week before you get over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was nice sort of like going to lunch in Mayfair or, you know, Oxford Street and stuff like that. So, And, and it was Again, exciting. only for a day or two before <laughs> you run out of money. <laughs> but I think the thing about the team was, you know, it was a new team, brand new team. And everything we were doing was groundbreaking had never been done before. And it was really, there was something exciting about it. Um, and, you know, when I first joined the team, it was great. Then the management of the team changed. And it went from being great to being an absolute nightmare. Um, it became a very, up bearing in mind, this was something that was dealing with diversity and equality issues. It became a very oppressive atmosphere. And the management that came along just totally, I don't know what was on it. It was almost like they, they didn't want us to be successful. They didn't want us to do anything. Anything we did, they were just trying to, I don't know. It was just horrible. It was a really bullying, nasty, horrible atmosphere. And I think for me, part of it was, I had other stuff going on outside of the job. As in, within me, I was battling my sexual orientation. Right? Um, so 
I had that battle going on and being at work was my safe space. I didn't have to think about that. I could get on and do work. And then that bullying just added to, it was like another rock on my back. Uh, and that pushed me down to a road where I started to really hate coming to work. Um, you know, you, we were constantly undermined by this man. You know, we had, when we first joined, the leader, the team leader that we had was very inspiring, very empowering. The word no did not exist in her vocabulary. You'd go to her and you'd say, uh, Gov, I've got this idea. And she would say, well, run with it, see where it goes. If it doesn't work, write it up, and maybe somebody can revisit it later. Right? There was never a no. Just, just try it. Let's see what happens. Let's see what we can stretch. Uh, you know, she would do things like come in and say, right, Coming on a Friday morning, right? Everybody come, we're going down an art gallery. There's a new exhibition. We're going to go and see this exhibition. Or, you know, we're all going to go out to a nightclub. Right? And stuff like that. She was very good at keeping people together. And then it went from that. We were trusted to got this new management team in. And that trust just went out the window. Suddenly, every, every little detail of everything we were doing was questioned to the minutest detail. You know, they did things like uh, we had a coffee coffee room where you go and make a tea room where you're making teas yeah. and coffees. And they came yeah. up with this rule. Only one person should be there at a time. Any conversation that takes place in that room is an elite, is an unofficial meeting and they're not allowed. Sounds like kindergarten rules. Yeah. They put all the supervisors on the outside of the room with all the PCs in the middle of the room so that the supervisors could watch them. Oh. It became a horrible, oppressive environment. In fact, I think two or three people from the team actually resigned from the job because of it. Um, and then came a point for me. I, I, what I don't want to do um, is, Oliver, is um, paint a totally negative picture because in all of this, there were some fantastic times as well. Mm. Some, some really great times where I know I really made a difference. Well, I, yeah. I suppose that's an important point to reflect on because your journey has been one of huge positives and, mm. you know, and negatives. But I think the negatives have driven the positivities for you to grow and to become this incredible person and influence mm. change. Let's talk about some of those positive aspects and the positive work that you did in that area of your work. What's one of the most proudest parts of working in those departments that you look back and th think to yourself, we did an amazing job there? Oh, God, there's so many. <laughs> um I mean, working on the positive action team in the early days, there are still people today who are in the job who say they joined the job because of me. Um, you know, and if it wasn't for the conversation happened, they wouldn't be there, and they're still they're still grateful, and I like that. That's kind of like pride. I mean, there was one young young lad at the time, um, Simon. I, nice lad and he came and he applied and he failed and i remember when he had the interview and i saw him after the interview and i could see how sad he was looking and i sort of took him to one side so what's going on and he said i really wanted this and other so i said right this is what we're going to do right 
you're going to reapply in six months' time. But in that six months, I'm going to coach you. I'm going to coach you. And I coached him through. In fact, you know, coaching for even that weekend, he would come around to my house for the weekend and we'd sit down and go through stuff. Right? And he came back the second time, got into Hendon, got through the process, got to Hendon. At Hendon, he started to struggle a bit. So we were sitting down trying to figure out, got him tested and realized he was dyslexic, which he didn't know. So we got him tested, got him sorted, got that support for him. And he's now doing really, really, he's still now doing really, really well in the job. Really well. And that's one of my things I'm proud of. Outside, there were moments where I remember there was this guy called John on my beat, the Irish guy. And he was terminally ill. But he was somebody that everybody knew. Everybody knew him. Yeah. And, um, he died. Eventually he died. And I knew it was going to be a big funeral because he was a big character around town. So I went back to the station. And I said, look, do you mind if I get a couple of uh, officers and we just do a bit of traffic control to make sure the funeral cortege stays together? And they said, yeah. And we got there and there must have been about six, seven hundred people turned up for this funeral in this church. And, you know, we, we helped and got it all set down. And then the, the service started and suddenly his wife stood up and she just said, hold on, stop, stop. She goes, where is G? And I'm sort of like, I'm here at the back and I just wave my hand. She goes, no, you come and sit with us as far as we're concerned, your family. And I remember walking down the center of the aisle in the church, down to the front and sitting next to the family. And that, that was a really beautiful moment. Um, and there's lots of moments like that. that no, that's what I loved about the job is that when you made a difference, you really made a difference. Um, one of my, I wouldn't call it a special, but I, I didn't mind dealing with sudden deaths or delivering death messages. And I think the reason why I liked those, and I say liked not as in, <laughs> but the, the, it was real. It was a moment that I love real. And it's something that the impact you're going to have uh, on someone's life is going to stay with them forever. Yes. Yeah. And that was so... Those moments were really profound. I can remember almost every single sudden death I went to, every single death message I delivered. And it, to me, I was, I, it was that thing, knowing that this is going to be a once in a lifetime. They're going to remember this. And I want to make it. Uh, as positive a memory as I can, if that makes mm. sense, in, in such a bad situation. Um, I remember one house, it was a, it was an old black grandfather had died and he had died overnight in bed. And um, I'd gone around to the, the son had found him in the morning. So I went around to the house and we were waiting for the, the undertaker to come and pick up the, the body. And I'm sitting down in the living room and gradually the whole family had turned up at the house and I'm sitting on the sofa and I'm writing up my notes as I sit. And suddenly I'm aware of about 20 people just looking at me, staring at me. Right. And I just looked up and I said, um, you want to know what it's like to be a black cop, don't mm -hmm. you? 
And they all, it was like, you know, almost like a choir. They went, yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's talk about it. And we just sat there, had this great conversation. And I remember when The Undertaker turned up, they turned around and said, we thought we were at the wrong house. And I said, why is it? Because we could hear all this laughter. Right? Because I was just telling them jokes. I was just, and I, and I, said, and I thought, they will remember, that's what they'll remember from that day. That how easily and how relaxed I made them feel. You're listening to part one of my chat with retired police constable Gamal Turua, or G. In part two, G and I discussed the moment that he sat up, looked at his colleague across the office and told her that he was gay. G describes the feeling of relief when finally he could just be him. And then she looks at me, she goes, I suppose, she goes, I suppose you don't have a problem with all the women you've got. How do you manage all the women you've got on the go? And I remember sitting there, I was typing and I looked up. I said, actually, I'm gay. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.